0: Well, my name's Larry Kayser, and I am the marriage pastor here at Fellowship, and I also have the privilege of getting to serve uh, on the elder team, and really grateful to be able to do that and to be here with you this morning as uh, Rob and Jody are off uh, helping lead a trip over in Israel for a week and a half or so, so we miss them, but uh, I get the opportunity to be with you this morning, and I'm very excited about that. You know, that last song that we just sang, but it said, all of my life, you have been redeeming me all of my life. You know, this book is, uh, it's so much about that. It really is. You know, the last couple of months, I have been exactly where you are today. I've been sitting out in the audience and I've been learning. You know, I've—I've I've, every week I've been sitting with my book of Ruth and I'm sitting and taking notes and um, I'm... I am allowing the Lord to lead and challenge my heart along the way in some really significant ways. And so I am so grateful to be up here and just share a little this morning uh, with you some of it about just the things that I've been learning sitting out there uh, for my own life and my own struggle. And you know, one of the things when I, when I, think about this book I think about it in this way life is not a series of problems to be solved life is a story to unfold that's the way I've experienced Ruth and I suspect it's the way you're experiencing it as well, not so much a problem to solve as to actually watching a story unfold about three pretty seemingly ordinary people that tells a much larger story of the providence of God than we have yet been able to see. I want to start uh, with a little bit of a review to catch us up to where we are this morning. That you know that the hand of God had fallen pretty hard on Naomi and her family. A famine in Judah chased them out of their homeland to move to Moab, a foreign land and a foreign culture in a very hostile world, a foreign religion. It was just foreign and it wasn't foreign friendly. It was foreign hostile. After they move, Naomi endures heartbreaking losses. Her husband Elimelech dies and then her two sons, marry. But within 10 years, both of her sons die. And so at the end of a decade or maybe a little more, give or take a little, what you have is three widows living in a really difficult desert, barren kind of place. 10 years of childlessness for both daughters-in-law and for Naomi, the entire thing becomes in a sense her own famine. It just does. So God brings the famine to an end and brings them back to Bethlehem. And the text even says that God gave them food. He provided for them food. And both their daughter-in-laws made plans to go back with Naomi. They wanted to go. Well, as they were getting ready to go, Naomi worked really hard to talk them out of it because she was basically saying to them, you're going to be way better off staying right where you are. If you come with me, you're going to leave your family, your friends, your resources, your security, the possibility of being remarried, the possibility of having your own family. You would come back as a widow in a place where you couldn't even marry somebody. Why in the world? Please don't. And so one of her daughters, Orpah, I think grudgingly doesn't go. She stays back, but not, not Ruth. Ruth is utterly Committed. She doesn't just refuse. To, she doesn't just refuse to go back to her own land, but she commits herself to a life-long following the God of the Israelites, Naomi's God. You know, this is a really interesting thing. You have to ask yourself, what is there in her life over the last decade that would have caused her? to make a choice to stay with Naomi, to move to a land where she would, in a sense, give up everything that you might think would make her life full. There wasn't gonna be a marriage in Judah. There wasn't gonna be children. Matter of fact, she's likely going to be impoverished her whole life. She's not coming somewhere to have a better life. She's gonna end up working almost like a slave, I suspect, in her life. And at some point, she's going to be responsible to take care of this older lady as she maybe becomes more and more difficult to navigate herself in her own life. And so ultimately, what she does is she chooses to follow God no matter what the cost. Where did she learn such a thing? I gotta believe that her friendship with Naomi, even though Naomi's life was, again, her own kind of famine, the pain that she, and the loss that she endured, but somehow she managed to navigate that world in such a way that it revealed something of the God that she loved so deeply to Ruth's heart. And so when Ruth comes back with her, she, she doesn't just commit. She, she literally commits in a vow kind of way. Not only am I going to stay with you and your people, but even when you die, I'm going to be buried where you die. And this entire vow, Naomi is secondary to the vow that she's made to God. It's an amazing thing. So clearly in that moment, you know, Ruth has placed herself, I don't even think she probably realized or thought about it, but she's placed herself in the providential pathway of God's love and care for sure. So when they arrive back at Bethlehem, the whole town comes out to meet them and, you know, 10, 11 years is a long time to be gone. But when she comes back, I'm sure there was great curiosity in this small town and the hand of Naomi says, The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She tells them not to call her Naomi, but Mara, because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full and I came back empty. And she said that statement with, I'm sure Ruth standing right there. She was in a really hard place but it was the time of the barley harvest when they arrived back, so at least there would be food to find. So uh, immediately upon settling somewhere, Ruth headed out to work as a beggar to glean food in the fields. The text tells us that she just happened to end up in the field that belonged to a man named Boaz. You know, when she went out to glean that first day, she was going out to do the work of somebody who was destitute, poor, or a slave. She was going to glean from the edge of the field where the Israelites were all commanded that they would harvest their fields to the edge and they would leave the edge of their field ungleaned for the, for the stranger and the alien and those in need. And so Ruth had begun her life that day as an impoverished woman seeking to somehow provide for her and Naomi by gleaning on the edge of the field. So we learn that Boaz has heard about Ruth. So she's ended up in his field and he knows about her. He's heard about her loyalty. He's heard about the commitment that she made to Naomi. And he was unbelievably gracious to her. He provided for her well-being well beyond just the allowance of, you know, gleaning from the edges of the field. He gave her the opportunity to go glean into the unharvested parts of the field. And he allowed her more food. He provided water for her. He provided rest for her. And he even provided protection for her and, uh, from other potential males out in other parts of the field to make sure that nobody would harm her. He really did jump in and take care of her. This is where we catch up with the story for where we're at this morning in verse 17 in chapter two. So if you haven't opened your book there, either your Bible or your book, go ahead and open that now. So I'm gonna read these verses, talk just a little bit about a couple of them, and then I'm going to circle back around to verse 20. And verse 20 is going to be the heartbeat of what we talk about this morning. So it gets started in verse 17. It says, so she gleaned in the field until evening, and then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. So probably roughly 30-ish pounds, a lot of barley. And when she shook it up... Uh, And she shook it up and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from being satisfied. So even when she was fed earlier, she kept the leftovers and brought it home. And you know, the, the thing I just want you to know or think about this little paragraph here is essentially that this is a paragraph that expresses great generosity and care. I mean, that's what's happening. It's just a very generous moment from Boaz to Ruth and to Naomi. So in verse 19, it goes on and it says, And her mother in law, after seeing all this grain, her mother in law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother in law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Naomi discovered that she just happened, you know, to end up in his field. And she also, I believe, just discovered that she had a near relative still alive in Bethlehem. I'm not sure that after being gone as long as she was I don't know that she knew if she had any near relatives left. And so the text goes on in verse 20. It says, And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of yours, one of our redeemers. You know, that first phrase right there in verse 20, she speaks a blessing over Boaz. And not only that, she attributes Boaz's generosity to the kindness of God. So I want you to think the last time that uh, Naomi says anything in this story is back in chapter one, when she gets back into Bethlehem and she tells everyone to call her Mara because God has been blessed with her. That's the last time you hear from her until this moment. And now she is speaking a blessing and she's attributing the kindness of Boaz, not to Boaz, but to God. Her heart is starting to turn. She's starting to see something that maybe is bigger than she's been able to see in the past. Let's finish reading this part of this story for today. And then we'll go back to verse 20. In in verse 21, it says, and Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with this young women, lest in another field, you'll be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Why do you think that Ruth was in danger of being assaulted? Do you think she was in danger of being assaulted just because she was a lone woman possibly out there? So I don't think that's really the issue. I think the reason that she's afraid of being assaulted is that she is a Moabite woman. Five times in this story, she is referred to as Ruth the Moabitess. The author is trying to tell us something about the significance of being a Moabite person. So for Ruth to go out and glean meant that she might literally be taking her life into her hands because Moabites were hated. Moabites were under the curse of God. Moabites were in constant conflict with the Israelites. the, The original descendants of the Moabites came from Lot from when he was living in Sodom. And the first descendant of the Moabites came from an ancestral relationship between Lot and his daughter. So Israelites were forbidden to marry a Moabite. And really, there's a long history of battles, wars, and cruelty. And so the reality is that she was most likely vulnerable to being taken advantage of, beaten, maybe even raped or killed simply because she was a Moabite. You know, until this moment, the, as I said, the last words we heard from Naomi were these words of despair. But when Naomi hears that Ruth is in Boaz's fields, it begins to change. So back in verse 20, we go back to this blessing. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness. You know, remember that word we've been talking about it a lot. It's the word hesed. It's probably in your book somewhere. Has not forsaken the living or the dead. That word Hesed, you know, is is this beautiful, big, descriptive word of God's faithful, kind, goodness, and provision and mercy. It's there's a bunch of words used to describe the meaning of that word. And so (laughs) Naomi is something's become alive a little bit in her heart. And you remember, you know, life's not a problem to be solved. This is a story to unfold. So I would have loved, I would have loved to have heard Naomi's voice. I'd have loved to have seen her face right here because something, something began to change. Something began to give her just a little spark in her spirit. Something began began to just give her a little hope. You, You realize how important hope is. You know, sometimes when I meet with married couples who are struggling. And one of the early questions I might ask sometimes is to rate their hope meter from maybe one to 10, 10 being a lot of hope and one not being much at all. And anytime somebody tells me their hope is a two or a one or three, I know that their entire perspective of their marriage has turned dark and inward because hope is a gift that keeps you seeing differently than you feel sometimes. Hope really matters. And this is the first time I think for, in in years, for Naomi, all of a sudden, a little bit of a future could be different than what she imagined. It's almost like God was blowing away a little fog. Could, Could something actually change? for my life. It, I just, it's a beautiful thing. From Hasid springs hope. And when and, and, you know, Naomi was so, so desperate to find some hope. And right here in verse 20, God has given her a gift. So I wonder, I wonder when this happened, I wonder if Naomi started to think about Things that had happened, even in her relationship with Ruth, and I wonder if she started framing them up a little differently. I wonder if she was starting to see God's hand a little bit in her life in a way that was just clouded before. So, like, it was God who stopped the famine in Judah so that Naomi and Ruth could come back. And the text clearly says God gave them food. So God's providential hand stopped the famine. Though Naomi tried really hard to tell Ruth to stay in Moab, it was the Lord who bound Ruth to Naomi in love. And he did it by binding her to her God first. Well, maybe it was Naomi first and then her God but there was this beautiful commitment that happened that God did. It was the Lord who preserved an aging, godly man named Boaz for Ruth and for Naomi. It was God who brought Ruth to the fields of Boaz. She could have been in any number of places, but she she walked right into Boaz's fields. She didn't know that God was involved. She didn't even think about it, I suspect. It was God who moved Boaz to show favor to this poor foreigner. I guarantee you, he didn't have another Moabite woman among his the women who were out working and helping in his fields. There wasn't another Moabite there. The greater story, the bigger story is trying to, is trying to be seen. It's trying to to rise up out of the dark, sad, lost places that she's been for so long. Naomi goes on to tell Ruth that Boaz is a near redeemer. So a near redeemer is someone who is from your own family, your own tribe, or your own clan, hence the phrase kinsman redeemer. And the Hebrew word for redeemer is the word goel. Goel. So anytime you see the word redeemer, anywhere in the Old Testament, it is the word Goel. I like that word. So the word Goel, Redeemer, literally means to tear loose, to rescue, to purchase, to pay a ransom, or to buy something back. It's what this word goel means. So here's I'm gonna show you up on the screen one at a time. There's a brief list of what the kinsman Redeemer could actually accomplish. Number one. The kinsman redeemer, the Goel, could redeem, buy back, or buy back land that was sold outside the family. And that text in Leviticus, if you wanted to go there, you could go read a little bit about that right there. In short, the kinsman could rescue or buy back what, this is a crucial part, buy back what others could not redeem for themselves to buy back what other people can't redeem for themselves. So why did God institute this kind of legal protection for the Israelites? When Joshua, you know, led the Israelites into the promised land, the land was divided up between families. And God surely knew that over time, some families are going to fall on hard times. They, They just are. Some you're going to, people are gonna die and people are gonna get sick and there's gonna be famine and floods and all kinds of things that are going to sometimes put farms in jeopardy. And so God knew that sometimes families would fall into poverty one way or the other and they would end up having to lose their land. And often they would lose their land to someone outside the family. And so God wanted to prevent his people one, from having land go outside of his covenant community, but also he wanted to, I think, make sure there wasn't this ever widening gap between the rich and the poor. So he tried to create a couple of things that would stop that from happening over time. He provided two ways to the Israelites to prevent, law, to prevent their loss of land and radically uneven wealth distribution. Every 50 years, God declared what's called the year of Jubilee. You've probably heard that phrase before. And what it means is when that comes on the 50th year, that if somebody did lose their land, it had to be returned to the original owners. And if those, if if they had died, then it was returned to their ancestors, but it came back into the family. Now, 50 years, that's a pretty long time for people to be maybe stuck in those circumstances. And so he did something else. And this is part of what a kinsman could do: is that he he appointed a kinsman who could, um, their nearest relative, come and redeem their land. He could buy it back for them, literally. In a sense, he comes and rescued the land that's been lost. The land for the Israelites. You know, this was all part of God's covenant promise to them. So the land was deeply rooted in who they were and what their relationship with God was like. And so the kinsman redeemer unquestionably acted on God's behalf with Hesed, faithful kindness. So God built this provision into their worlds. That's the first thing a kinsman could do. He could redeem land that was lost, he really, through poverty or hardship. The second thing, a kinsman redeemer could redeem or buy back a relative who sold himself into slavery because he could not pay a debt. So sometimes they would the last thing they would ever want to do is sell off their land to pay a debt off. And so in order to pay the debt without losing their land, they would sell themselves to someone else into slavery until such time they had paid back whatever the cost might be. And this was a way for them to keep their land so the kinsmen could pay the debt to redeem them out of slavery. So I want you to think about you know they they're completely incapable of getting out of this thing and think about what you and I understand what were we enslaved to prior to finding our redeemer sin and you and I couldn't buy our way out of it there, there, we were incapable of redeeming ourselves and so, as this progresses, you're going to begin to see, you know, little small hints of God's very much larger plan begin to come into play here. But you and I have a redeemer who could redeem us out of slavery and pay something we were not capable of paying. The third thing that a kinsman could do. As a kinsman redeemer could re- preserve the family lineage of a deceased male by marrying his widow and providing children for the heir, this is called leveret marriage. I, I'm not going to get into all the technicalities of that right here. I just want you to hear the principle, and um, you know, it, it's a it's an interesting thing to think that. By doing this, the person's life doesn't disappear after they die, I guess is how I'd say it. In this case, when, if you think about Ruth and Naomi, in this case, the redeemer, Boaz, possibly, if that could ever happen, he, he'd have to marry Ruth because Naomi would be too old to bear children. So this is why Naomi expressed blessings for both the living and the dead, because the inheritance would continue to be associated with Ruth's deceased husband, therefore preserving the legacy well beyond his time on earth. So when she cried out that when, when Naomi blessed God at the very beginning and blessed Boaz for his generosity, she said, God blessed him and he cares for the live, God cares for the living and the dead. Like, so God was aware of their legacy as a family, as a covenant family before God. This is quite, it's an amazing thing. So if the kinsman is able, if the kinsman is able and willing to redeem Naomi's land and to marry Ruth, he will not only have paid all of Naomi's debt, but all of his wealth would become Ruth's. It costs something to redeem. Can't you just feel like Lloyd and Rob have said umpteen times, and you know there's something more. There's something more going on than meets the eye. Can't you feel other stuff going on here? Something that doesn't meet the eye. So, that, but here, here's a. There's a couple of flies in the ointment. And here's one of them. This is the first instance of the Goel, the redeemer, paying the price for someone who is not an Israelite. They were forbidden to marry Moabites. You know, Ruth was an idolatrous Moabitess before God pursued her. This meant she was ethnically an outsider to the covenant and to the customs and laws of Israel. Israelites were not supposed to marry women of other nations. And what God was doing in this far Seeing providential moment was planting a seed that would break through the barriers of ethnicity and racism in the kingdom of God. As the history of the people progressed, God would make it clearer and clearer that the real issue isn't culture. It's not race. It's not ethnicity, but faith in the one true God is what makes us family. This is a foreshadowing of the Hesed of God moving out from the Israelites' to the whole world. When, when you think about what we're talking about right now, you and I have been impacted by what is going to happen in this story. You and I weren't Israelites. And this is one of the very first moments where we begin to see a hint of the larger story that God is going to open up his heart, his love, his grace, his redemption to all of the world. So what you're going to learn in chapters three and four is that out of this very simple story of these three people will come the thread of humanity that will give the world a kinsman redeemer named Jesus. This Jesus will be for the whole world. There'll be no restraints, no on people, groups, or color. Nothing that would be a barrier to the love of Jesus. This little book, like I, I would, I would like to go farther in chapter three and chapter four. This story is going to unfold, and and you're going to see the amazing providence of God that didn't just impact Ruth and didn't just impact Boaz and didn't just impact Naomi. It was going to impact the whole world forever. This little story, it's an amazing thing. So how did Jesus become our near kinsman? How did that happen? What had to happen? The first thing that had to happen for Jesus to become our near kinsman is he had to become a man. He had to become one of us. He had to be flesh and blood. He had to feel pain, sacrifice, laughter, joy, hurt, betrayal, hunger, blisters. I don't know. But he had to feel what we feel and experience what we experience and to have it without sin. And so Jesus came as the kinsman for all of humanity. This is an incredible seedbed of how that happens. What you don't wanna miss the next few weeks, cause this is gonna unfold in the next few weeks. Jesus was worthy to pay the ransom, to free us from the slavery of sin because he had no sin. And so he could pay the price, whatever the ransom was, to set us free. Our redeemer, our kinsman, our goel. You know, and after that happens, you know, Romans 8 is is like my favorite chapter in the Bible because it starts off at the beginning and it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So my kinsman, my goel, has set me free for the rest of my life for the condemnation of sin. It's gone. And then in the middle of the chapter, it talks about the fact that we get to be adopted as sons and daughters, and we cry out, Abba. He's our father. He's our near kinsman. And then the book, there's a lot in between here, but then the very end of the book, It just basically says for two, verses 38 and 39, it says basically there is nothing on earth that can separate us from the love of God. No condemnation, no separation because he's our kinsman. He's paid the price. This little story you're gonna see in the next two chapters like literally a thread that goes straight there. It's an amazing thing. Revelation 5, verse 9. Who's worthy to open these scrolls? And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. This is Jesus. He's the one worthy to open the scrolls. And by your blood, you ransomed people from for God from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. The kinsmen. You think the Bible's written by accident? Seriously. When you watch this story unfold the next few weeks, it's an amazing thing. There's a lot more going on than you can see with your eye sometimes. You're gonna, yeah, well, I just didn't, you wanna be here for it. You don't wanna miss the the rest of this story. I'm gonna close with a personal reflection. Now, like I told you at the beginning, I've been sitting out in the seats for the last two months with you and I'm writing in my book and I'm learning. And I wanna tell you something, before we went through this study, If you'd have asked me, who would I like to be like of the characters in this book? And I thought, well, I guess I'd like to be like Boaz. Boaz is considered to be a type of Christ in in this story, as you'll see. Boaz was a, a kind, wise, mature, trusted, godly man who gave enormously of, to Ruth, you're going to see in the story. He, he's an amazing man. And I thought, well, I I would like to be like Boaz. And that would be a good, that'd be a good desire. But you know, the more I've studied and the more I've come to understand the story, I think I have a, even a bigger need to be like Ruth. And here's why. What Ruth did, when Ruth chose to follow God, she took all the conditions away. I mean, she didn't, you know, like I know for me and for a lot of us in in our world, you know, we come to God because we think God's going to make our life happier or better or easier or something, that these hard things are going to be taken away or like we, we sometimes think that. And, and a lot of times we, I, bargain with God, you know, if then this, I do, you know, or you get angry, frustrated, you know, you even curse him or you just can't believe that something bad that's happened, it's so hard to deal with that we just reject him altogether. He couldn't be a good God. And see what, you could think Naomi was doing that, but Naomi didn't do that. Na, Naomi wrestled like crazy. She never rejected that God was there and that the hard things were there and she certainly struggled to figure out how that all worked but she knew that God was central to the good and the bad to the beautiful and the hard like she knew this and so Ruth God I'm following you I'm following you no matter what so I'm going to go back and read what her words And back in verse chapter one, Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. That's a beautiful wedding thing right there. And everybody stops right there. But then she goes on to say, And when you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. I will just tell you that for me, you know, taking the idols of comfort and, you know, the need to have a life the way I want or to to be in control Or, you know, the older I get, the more vulnerable I feel. The more vulnerable I feel to economic things, the more vulnerable I feel to health issues, the more vulnerable I feel towards, you know, Ann and I have been married for 42 years. And, um, you know, sometime something's going to get harder. And um, I feel all those vulnerabilities different. And so it's so easy to so put conditions on the way I follow Jesus. And so my heart for me, for you would be, you know, is there somewhere in your life with God today that say, I, I can't really give my whole life because I, there's, it has to be like this. My kids have to be okay. You know, we've got to have enough money Like, whatever it might be. But I think I need a dose of figuring out what it means to be like Ruth, to take my conditions away. Let me pray. Pray with me for a minute. Father, I don't know how to answer that question for anybody in the room. You know, what do we need to, what conditions do we need to take down to let God lead our life. And Lord, some of us might be sitting here this morning and saying, I have never, I won't give my life to God because I don't trust what he'll do with it. And Lord, I wanna pray that you might bring to our hearts today some place, some idol, some thing that we have in our life that's become more important than our loving obedience to you, our willingness to trust you at all cost. And I pray that you'd not only expose that, but you'd give us the courage to do something. But God, I know one thing. The first thing we gotta do about it is pray because we're not capable of fixing it without your help. And so, Lord, I pray, pray for myself that you would help me Be like Ruth and take my conditions down. And God, I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.